Have a seat. Let's get going. Now, uh, first tonight, a little moment of a sentimental value, if you don't mind. Uh, the team from Ecuador just got back last Friday. It was an amazing trip. And I really appreciate Jared preaching last week. I uh, heard it was incredible. Uh, I wanted to share with you guys just when, um, when I am away like that, it makes, makes uh, and, and reminds me of my deep affinity for being a part of this community. I consider uh, every relationship in this room an extreme blessing and measure of God's grace. And I just want to let you know that um, how much it, uh, it burdens in an encouraging way my heart when I'm not here, uh, because I just, I have a deep love for you all. It's amazing God has blessed us with a great team uh, to be able to minister to you all uh, when others are out of town, and when we're ministering together, but I just want to let you know how much I love you, and uh, tonight especially, I hope that you uh, see my deep passion for you. I, I have a very uh, strong sense about this evening, and so I'm excited that you'll kind of journey uh, with us with the cross as our focus tonight, which seems like a pretty appropriate focus, amen? Now, there's uh, things in our life that bring about an uh, interesting sense of urgency. Uh, have you guys ever played the game Catchphrase? Yeah, like, if you want to see some urgent people, like, watch people play Catchphrase. It's cutthroat, man. I mean, people are out to get each other. If you haven't played this game, you live in a cave. Uh, and, but it, it's basically like hot potato, okay? So you're passing this little computerized uh, game around, and when the timer goes off, whoever's hand it's in is the loser in that uh, particular round. It's hilarious, though, to watch how urgent people get when they're playing catchphrase. You've seen it. Have you ever lost your keys or a wallet, right? You guys ever, it's like, it's like all of a sudden, you, you're like you're doing the pat down, like the self pat down, right? I'm not sure. I think, and people just go in frantic mode, rightfully so. Their debit card could be stolen. It's probably an interesting moment. Uh, the, the last uh, thing that I really think we see a sense of urgency is uh, when people say that they want to kill you. Uh, kind of an interesting way to begin this evening. I was in seventh grade, uh, had went on a ski trip uh, with a youth group, and uh, on the bus, classically in youth group, I had uh, held hands with a girl there on the bus. I was uh, pretty attracted to her, did the old, you know, like the old like hand down here thing, you know, like put your hand in here, you guys remember that, right, when you used to like make it so obvious, or you did the like under the blanket, remember this one, remember this one, you're like crossing hands, and anyway, I held hands with Courtney Oldfield, uh, she was uh, a resident, uh, beautiful uh, woman very popular. Unbeknownst to me, she had a boyfriend uh, at the time. And also unbeknownst to me, uh, this particular boyfriend happened to be the school uh, bully. His name was Jeremy Forson. Uh, he was a stud, had bigger biceps than my head at the time in seventh grade, already had a mustache. Remember those guys in seventh grade? They were already fully developed, like their armpit hair went down to their stomach. That was this guy. And so... Um, I remember uh, getting back from the ski trip. Again, I didn't know any of this. No one forewarned, uh, no one forewarned me. I I'm going down the hallway, and uh, Jeremy, like I can see, and we were kind of buddies. He was kind of looking at me from across the hallway, like giving me the, I'm going to kill you look, right? And I'm like, oh, hey, hey, buddy, like everything all right? And then he comes up to me, and he says, uh, he says this, quote, unquote, very first time I'd ever heard these words. He says, you are going to die. Now, um, again, still at this point, I'm like, what, like, what, what happened? What did I do? Um, so after lunch on this one particular day, uh, I'm, I'm walking out and Jeremy walks up to me. Very first time I've, I, I was ever punched. 
he open hand fisted me to the side of the face, okay? But, but that period of time, how many of you guys have ever been punched, right? It's a pretty interesting moment. The moment of time from when he said, I'm going to kill you or you're going to die, until the open hand to the side of the face, which, by the way, I took it like a champ. I was like, excuse me? Like, is there a fly here somewhere? Like, I'm not sure. It's like, well, you want to go now? All right, let's do this, big boy. We can do this. That period of time, I was uh, under tremendous pressure. Uh, I would imagine that there's been a time when someone said to you, uh, hopefully not a parent or a spouse, they said, uh, I'm going to kill you, right? You're going to die. Maybe they were joking, like, ha, 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 you're going to die later. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but still, there's something about hearing those words that bring a great sense of urgency. Uh, now, tonight, uh, for me, my contention will be to us that Christians, and one of the biggest epidemics of Christianity is a lack of urgency. I sense that we're living lacklusterly, that we don't really understand what this symbol represents. It's become a nice thing on a necklace, a great thing to put on a wall. Maybe your grandma had a crucifix somewhere. But the very symbol of the cross to me represents the image of urgency. I feel like we've forgotten it. I feel like we've lost it because we haven't connected it to the Scripture. We're searching for all these intangible things around us to give us a sense of urgency or to make us feel like the day and the hour unknown of Christ's return. However, it's really not doing anything to affect our hearts because it's devoid of the Scripture. My contention to you tonight will be this. This symbol alone should create this deep-rooted sense of urgency in all of us. And so as we journey through tonight, I want to show you the hit list on Jesus. From the moment he was born, Herod wanted to kill him. The first time he entered uh, his hometown, he was under death threats. And I want to show you three other times in the scripture when Jesus had to be living with a tremendous amount of urgency because people were saying, you're going to die. We want to kill you. I know it's easy to critique the President of the United States. I know many of you are phenomenal critiques of him. Have you ever just tried to put yourself in, in his shoes for a moment, or even particularly his wife? Could you imagine waking up every day knowing that your husband's life, like that people all over the place were, were targeting him in an assassination attempt? It has to be a humbling, pressuring deed to be the President of the United States and take on that sense of urgency. Well, Christ certainly felt that. So I'm going to look at these uh, three examples no need to turn your scriptures. We're going to be looking at them on the screen. The first is one of my favorites from the Word. It's in Luke 6. Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath. This is a massive issue of contention. Really quick, uh, some history. The Sabbath was always a beautiful Jewish uh, rhythm, pattern, way of life. A problem is when the Jews were deported to Babylon, the seventh day of the week was a day of the devil or a day of evil. And so when they were deported to Babylon, uh, all of a sudden they started trying to protect this thing that was freeing. The Sabbath initially was, listen, you work six days, one you take off. That sounds amazing. Anyone else? Like, it's a beautiful thing. The Jews loved it. It was a gift. It was grace. They get back from Babylon, which was a day of evil, and then all of a sudden they start adding, the Pharisees and others, start adding all these extra rules and regulations to try to battle it. So one of the biggest issues of contention when Jesus comes is the Sabbath. Because all these extra rules have been put on the Sabbath to try to protect it. And what Jesus is going to show is that actually he's come 
to be the Lord of it. So look at this in Luke 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. If you uh, have ever uh, just done a survey of the Gospels, this pattern of the Pharisees and the scribes always watching, they're looking, they're prowling, they're waiting to catch Jesus in something. They were watching him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might find a reason to accuse him. Interesting to note, the uh, Hebrew word for Satan, anyone know? It's hasatan, which literally means the accuser. So interesting, as we journey through the scripture, how many times the Pharisees and scribes come at him with accusations. Verse 8, but he knew their thoughts. That has to be an amazing gift as God. Uh, he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Next slide. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to them was, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were, look at this, filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do with Jesus. Everywhere Jesus is going, again, his hometown, including right after his birth, people are filled with fury about who he is, who he's claiming to be, his teachings, his healings. Jesus is causing a rift everywhere he goes. Could you imagine living in this sort of pattern where everywhere you go, people are trying to accuse you. They're watching you. They're waiting. For many of you, it feels pretty disconnected. Actually, that's the Christian way of life. Uh, the biggest contention of Christians from the world is that we're what? Is that we're hypocrites. Those Christians, like they, they say one thing and then they live another way. The world is watching us, waiting for another slip-up, Right? Waiting to when we don't receive grace. Waiting to when we look perfect, act perfect, say the particular kind of language. The world thrives on that. And so yes, maybe our life isn't in danger here in America, but certainly the eyes are on us, aren't they? That in and of itself should bring a sense of urgency. Knowing that people are watching, they're waiting. What will they do? How will they respond? What, this chaos thing that happened in their life, what's going to be their action in, in lieu of it? Well, this is Jesus' pattern. Now, what's interesting to note is this. This point in, in history, the healing on the Sabbath, it wasn't Jesus' time to die. But he continues to live taking on the accusations. Next slide in our second example, John 10. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Been there, pretty incredible place. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? Don't you love this? like a movie scene here, right? Like, what's going on? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. I keep trying to tell you who I am, but you're not taking it for what it's worth. Next slide. My sheep hear my voice. Beautiful passage. And I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. Can we just sit in the power of this passage? I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. To be called a son or daughter of the great God of the universe is to know that you're in the palm of his hand and cannot be snatched out of it. You can't break a covenant you didn't start. Are we together? 
Go, go back to the previous slide there for me. Thank you. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And here the response. This gets interesting. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Um, I love the, the word again. It's like he's in a perpetual state of being stoned. You know what I'm saying? Like everywhere he's going, stone him, right? Like here comes the Christ. Get the big rocks out, right? But, but this was his reality. Everywhere Jesus was going, the teachings that he was portraying, there was always some that believed, some that were in, some that were following, and others were lurking, waiting, longing for the next opportunity to accuse. So they pick up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. From which of them are you going to stone me? Right? This has to be an interesting moment for the Christ, right? People have picked up stones, and he's saying, okay, so uh, like, what's the accusation here? Why, why are you going to chuck and duck that stone at my face? Like, I, I'm not so sure that you should be doing this. This isn't a wise move on your part. Verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Is it interesting to anyone else? That the life of the Christ could have ended here. It could have all been over. Stones in hand. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. A bunch of stones at once hurled at the human flesh don't go over very well, right? His life could have been over. And I'm just showing you three examples. But it wasn't time. The right time, the specific time, the appointed time. It wasn't yet. And we see one more example here that I want to make sure you guys understand. Luke 13, at that very hour, verse 31, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And this isn't the first time. Uh, now we're bringing in the, the, the hierarchy of power who are putting death threats on Jesus. And you've got to love this in verse 32. If, you're, uh, ever get, uh, if you ever have a death threat from a king, this is an appropriate response. Go and tell that fox. Uh, Behold, I, I can't, that's a term of endearment in the scripture. Um, Jesus can't sin, so apparently this, I mean, this, is a, this is a term of blessing here. Go and tell that fox, uh, behold, I cast out demons and perform uh, cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. I pause here for a moment to say this. Uh, Jesus was born to die. Jesus was never an afterthought. Some believe about the Bible that sin enters the world through Adam and Eve, and then all of a sudden God says, oh no, what am I going to do? Oh no, this whole plan went awry. Enter Jesus. Jesus was always the plan. In the beginning, God, the word there is Elohim, Father, Son, Spirit. God was always plural from the very beginning. In other words, Jesus wasn't an afterthought. He always was the plan of redemption, and Jesus understood it in his path and journey to the cross. He understands what's happening. It's not a surprise to him. And he's living urgently in lieu of it. He knows when the stones are picked up or when the accusations are being hurled, it's not yet time. There will be a time that's coming when all the clocks will align. But at this point, it's not yet. So he says, on the third day, I will finish my course. He knows he's going to be resurrected. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, in uh, preparing for tonight, I studied all the times when Jesus receives death threats, accusations. There's, 
a couple more times in John where uh, it says the people wanted to kill him and accuse him. And all of a sudden, things were made very clear to me. All of these moments where people, hey, it's time to die, Jesus. We want to throw you over a cliff is another phrase. All of these ventures for Christ, it's so intriguing to me that none of them actually accomplish it. So the question is, why? Why does three years, excuse me, three years of ministry happen, and then all of a sudden the time becomes right? Uh, well, I don't know about you, but it's amazing to read four Gospels and see God incarnate. Anyone else? It's amazing to open my Bible and to be able to see what God looks like. Colossians 1 says He is the image of the invisible God. It's amazing for me to open up my scripture and to see the image of God in Jesus. And the very grace that he's provided us is three years worth of example of what it looks like to have tremendous compassion on the hurting. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is when Jesus goes over and touches the buyer of a widow's son who's passed away. They didn't see him. He saw them and in compassion went over and reached over and healed him, raised him back to life. I love that story. I don't know about you. I love seeing Jesus teach in the scripture. I, I love seeing the fact that uh, he's training and discipling these men who are following him. I say praise God for the three years that are recording or, recorded or so of the Christ. Anyone else? I say like if the stones would have come too early, yes, it would not have been the right time in God's sovereignty, but also we wouldn't have this powerful accord of who God is. And so listen, I sit back for a moment as we celebrate the death of Christ and just say praise God for the life of Christ. The power of the life of Christ is that you have at your access the chance to open your scripture and see who God is. And for me in my house, that in and of itself, let alone a cross, creates a sense of urgency because I say, I want to follow that God. A God who would be so gracious and merciful to send his own son, humble himself like Philippians 2 says, even to death on a cross, that kind of God I want to follow. That kind of God, I want to know his heart. That kind of God, I want to understand why he's so compassionate, why he's so gracious on me. Well, then all of a sudden, uh, things come to a head. It won't be on your screen, but just listen to this. John 19. Subtitle is The Death of Jesus. He's been flogged. He's been beaten. For any of you who have seen The Passion of the Christ, I would imagine you have a fairly decent perspective of the beatings and the hurlings and the insults that Christ endured. It's easy for those to feel distanced because it's a betrayal on a movie screen, but the scripture deems it true. After this, John 19 verse 28 says, Jesus, listen to this, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. Uh, have any of you guys ever seen the uh, old show ER? Any fans of ER? Come on, come on props that show was amazing they need to bring it back right now anyone else right well er taught me everything i know about the medical field okay um i actually i think i could be a doctor based upon that show come over here stat like you know you get the defibula honker the fibulator thing going you know um one of the always one of the gripping moments of er is at the end of this long show where they're kind of like playing it up because someone's going to die. The family's gathered there. And there's someone laying on the bed. And all of a sudden, the doctor looks up after the, the waves go 
go null and void, and, and he calls out the time of death. You know, like 1058, time of death. And the music's building, and I typically was crying, right? And this is Jesus' time of death. But the watch wasn't held by a Pharisee. The watch wasn't held by those who wanted to stone him. It wasn't held by Herod or Pilate. It wasn't held by the mob. It was held by his father. Are we together? God is holding the clock on the life of his son. And at this moment in time, in John 19, the time of death has come. Many have tried to kill him to this point. And even in this instance, some would take the credit for it, but only God can. Like Ephesians 50, or Isaiah 53 continues to say, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God's plan of redemption was sending Jesus to die on a cross, and at the moment, the time of his death, redemption for those who would believe. And so uh, Jesus, to fulfill the scripture, says, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said the famous words in my Bible read, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and the scripture says, gave up his spirit willingly in obedience to the Father. And God says, and now is the time of death. This moment in the history of the world, the Christ must die. Not at the hands of those wanting to stone him, but at the hands of a great and merciful God who said, now you're the perfect Passover lamb whose blood signifies all life. So for me, I... Uh, Processing all this, looking at the other times of accusation in the life of Jesus. Seeing the, the sense at which he lives. If you're holding the stopwatch in your hand, I understand why you don't live urgently. If you're in control of that life of yours, when your ticker will end, when that relationship will finally come to fruition, if you're the one that's holding it, I can understand our lethargy. I get it. It makes sense. We'll call the shots. All right, God, now it's my time to die. Now it's my time to live. Now it's my time to experience this. Now it's my time to follow you or not. If we're in control of it, all of our lack of urgency completely makes sense, doesn't it? Of course, because we're in control. We're holding it. We're calling the shots. And so at whatever juncture is convenient for us, then all of a sudden we can make it so. But if God is holding the watch for His Son in the most significant moment in three days of the entire history, then what does it mean of you? If He held the watch in the time of death for His Son, then how can we ever have the audacity to think that he's not in control of ours. And if he's in control of ours, the time of death, the time of life, 
the opportunity to live or have this relationship or this job or this path or journey, then I say that creates a sense of urgency. If someone else is holding the clock, then the scripture really is true that says the day and the hour are unknown. So then all of a sudden the very symbol of the cross becomes our greatest sense of urgency because Jesus, His time of death, was called by His Father God and so yours will be as well. And because of that, and because of that alone, how in the world are we living without urgency? How in the world are we walking around this life thinking it'll all be okay? I can keep living and indulging my mouth with the flesh. I can keep, uh, I can keep completely going after sexual sin, reckless abandon. I can keep indulging my life in all the things that seem so distracting. How can we believe for one second that that is the way to live when the cross says, no, listen, you are in the palm of God's hand and you can't be snatched out, but that doesn't mean when you'll live or you'll die. Are we together? He's holding it, which should in and of itself create in us a sense of urgency. And so I say this to you. Where right now are you lazy, lethargic, not serious, not understanding that time is not your own? Where right now are you trying to hold the steering wheel of control, unwilling to release it, unwilling to say, God, I know that you, I know that you are. In what ways right now have you completely let urgency go when the obedience of a great God-man in Jesus showed us what it would look like to live urgently and to follow in the will of His Father. So I want to talk to a few different groups of people. First of all, uh, to those of you who came here who don't believe uh, in this, uh, let me explain what I mean. The cross, I know uh, for many of you guys, uh, it's, it's a nice Christian symbol. Look, we even threw the crown of thorns on there, a little extra dramatic touch, right? So some of you are like, oh yeah, yeah I've seen that before, it's... Well, here's what this means for uh, followers of God. Uh, Jesus, the perfect God-man, was put on a cross, nailed to it actually, and the blood that dripped down, uh, the, His blood that was poured out, uh, means forgiveness of our sins. Okay, That's what the cross is. The Bible says the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe, so I know full well that for some of you here tonight, the cross is foolishness for you. Like the whole image right now, you're like, this is just strange. They got a cross in the middle of the room with a crown of thorns on it. Are we going to like sacrifice a child tonight? What's going on, you know? So I know full well that some of you walked in here believing that, thinking that. Listen, I, I'm, just, I'm just not into this uh, Jesus thing. I just want to encourage you with this. Your time is not your own. And every day that inches nearer to your death or the return of Christ, will consistently reveal, my friends, that you don't own or hold the stopwatch. It's not in your hand. The Bible says Jesus is coming back, and when He does, my friends, He will take the church back with Him. And I long for that day. Anyone else? I long for the day to sit in the glory of God all day long. I mean that. Can't wait for that day. It's not going to be playing Tiger Woods golf all day in heaven. It's going to be glorying in the great Father God. I can't wait for that. 
But for those of you in here who came in and the cross was foolishness to you, let me just say this to you. Uh, the time is now. You may be thinking in your mind, like, well, I'll just, I'll just wait to get serious for a couple more weeks. Yeah, you, I know it sounds so cliche, but listen, you're not holding the stopwatch. You may not have another couple weeks. The same couple weeks that you think you control are the same couple weeks that sit in the hands of a great God. Now, the amazing opportunity for you is that redemption, repentance, forgiveness of sin can come now for you. And so I say to those of you who walked in here on this cross of foolishness, I say, what if, what if this cross really meant that you could have right relationship with God and be completely forgiven of your sins? Is that something that you would want? Would you want to have hope and life and a, some semblance of meaning in your existence? Or are you okay just in the decrepit state that you're in? Come to Jesus. That's all I have to say. Come to Christ. Call on His name. Say, God, I'm tired of waiting or for things to get right in my life. I, I'm so, uh, so burdened by the amount of people that I hear say, I'm just going to get cleaned up and come to God. No, you come to God and He cleans you up. That's the way it works. You don't figure out your drug issue and then come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and He figures out your drug issue. You don't figure out your porn addiction and then come to, come to God. No. You come to Him and He cleans you up. Praise God for that, right? Right? Uh, the second group of people I want to talk to are the, uh, the lethargic, non-urgent Christians here. Many of you. I'm so burdened by you because our lives should be representative of what Christ has done for us. And yet it's so easy for us to come week in, week out of our church growth, of our communities, of our jobs, of our life, and act as if this is just a nice symbol. What does it look like for you to live urgently? What does it look like for you to completely believe that you're not holding the time of death and time of life in your hands, that you're not in control? If that was true, what would shift? What patterns of your life, what relationship would become important? What rhythms of your existence would all of a sudden change? Anyone else burdened by the lethargic Christian? What are we revealing? That the cross has no power. That's what we're showing. The cross really didn't do anything in us. It didn't create a sense of joy or long-term change in us. It's just kind of a nice thing for Christians to come and rally around and every once in a while take communion. I don't believe that. I think the cross causes a sense of urgency all the time. I believe there's not a minute that goes by that this symbol shouldn't stir in us the depth of God's love for us. I just say to you, lethargic Christian, have you forgotten the depth of God's love for you? If you understood it, if you conceptualized it, if you believed it, it would drive your entire existence because you'd wake up and say, I'm undeserving of your love, but I know you've been loving and I'm so incredibly grateful. Amen? Amen. So I say to uh, those of you who are in that uh, boat, repent now. You're like, well, yeah, but I just need to muster it up. No, 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 no. You need to pray that God gives you a picture of his love and that will do the mustering for itself. Uh, the last group of people I want to talk to are the folks that are um, chasing after the cross. The folks right now who are sensing the breath of God down your neck. 
You'll hear uh, some more stories next week, but in Ecuador, one of the most amazing pieces of it was the Word of God was central. You walked in anywhere and people were talking about the Word memorizing Scripture. It was beautiful. One of the things that was incredibly consistent was we felt like God was breathing down the back of our neck. And so for those of you guys that are there, I just say this, take heart. Take heart. Have courage. I know there's some around you saying, oh, it's all going to come crashing down one day. You'll lose your passion. You'll go through dry seasons. Some of that may happen, but you know what? I want to take heart. I want to believe that I can experience the fullness of God's presence all the time. I want to believe that I can truly exist in His joy all the time. That I don't have to get weighed down by all the circumstances of life. I, I want to believe that this means something. So for those of you that are there, take heart. Take courage. The gospel is still enough, my friends. Pray that He keeps breathing down your neck. Now, for all three groups of those, um, of those people that I just spoke of, the amazing thing that we have an opportunity to do is uh, to remember the sacrifice of the Lord, the depth and power of His love by taking a meal that has been taken uh, since uh, the death of Jesus and even before, its significance before uh, the life of Christ, was somewhat different, focused the Old Testament and the Passover, but now Jesus and His blood and His body being broken representative of the perfect Passover lamb in Christ. So for that first group of people, if you're we're here tonight and you're like, yeah, I walked in and the cross was foolishness, but honestly, I'm ready just to surrender my life. Then maybe for you, one of your first actions, because a communion, the Lord's Supper, is for believers, is just to come and participate in this meal. You never have before. This is a great opportunity for you to come. Pull off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and just say, God, I'm yours. Forgive me of my sins. I'm tired of running from you. I know you're calling my name. I just want to be yours. Uh, for the lethargic, uh, the non-urgent, the lackluster, listen, the time of repentance is now. Turn from your sin and your lethargy and see the great image and example of Jesus. And I pray tonight that as we take communion, this for you is the, the gut-wrenching prayer. God, make in me an, a, a, an urgent heart. Give me a sense of urgency. Give me a renewed passion. I'm tired of my complacency. So for some of you, it's breaking again at the love of God and saying, God, I'm yours. Lastly, for the group of people who are learning a ton from God's word, who are experiencing tremendous amounts of God's uh, passion and glory in your life for those who a sense, of course, uh, minus some pitfalls that you're just following after him. I pray that tonight, this is another reminder that it's not by your works that you're saved, but by the great, by the great sacrifice of King Jesus. Because it's so easy for us in those moments of great obedience where we start to think that God is approving of us just because of who we are. That never happens. We're only approved because of his son, Jesus. Why don't you guys stand with me for a second, if you could. When I was a young kid, 
I, uh, my first chain was a cross necklace. thought it was pretty cool. had some gold on it. I remember uh, my grandma asking me about it. Mark, that's, that's a great necklace. Uh, what does that mean for you? Grandma means I'm a Christian. Crosses worn on my neck. What I didn't realize what I was saying as a young kid, and certainly not imaged just by a necklace, but this is my image of hope. An empty tomb, certainly that's to come. The blood dripped down on a cross. This is my symbol of urgency. This is my symbol of God's love. This is my symbol that I cannot live one more day thinking that I own the clock. Things will happen on His time. And I have to be okay with that. God, thank You in Your timing that you saved me by the blood of your son. Thank you, God, by your timing. And so, God, whenever you decide to come back or call me home, I pray that until that day, you stir passion in my heart to be a bearer of this symbol to the world. So as we respond tonight with communion and the Lord's Supper, for all three groups of those people, maybe tonight, the cross is more than wood and rope. Maybe tonight it's the image of God's love. Let's respond. Come when you're ready.